The use of biofuels to power aircraft should play an important role in the aviation sector's transition pathway. The International Air Transport Association estimates that sustainable aviation fuels, or SAFs, could contribute up to 65% of the emissions reduction needed for the sector to reach net zero by 2050. Like with many climate tech solutions out there, however, it's not the potential that is questionable. It's whether investments can actually ramp up production quickly enough to meet demand. Currently, less than 1% of aviation fuels used in Europe are SAFs. And then there's the question of how the feedstock to make these biofuels is sourced and whether sustainable aviation fuel is actually sustainable. Bank of America is one of the most active financiers in this space. The bank committed to support the production and use of 1 billion gallons of sustainable aviation fuel last year. For this episode of ESG Conversations, I spoke with Vilas Kushinad, Head of Innovation within the Global Sustainable Finance Group at Bank of America, whose team focuses on new sustainable asset classes and emerging climate technologies. Vilas, thank you so much for being here. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Marianne. Uh, I'm glad to join today. So when we talk about, you know, decarbonizing some of the hard to abate sectors like transportation, like sustainable fuel, and this in this case, sustainable aviation fuel, SAF, I find, is sometimes kind of talked about as this magic solution, this silver bullet that's coming from the tech space and innovative space, and banks and investors are kind of rushing to put that technology out there. Um, do you also see it that way? Is it kind of this, this silver bullet solution for you? Um, I don't know if I'd call it a silver bullet solution, but I definitely think it's one of the best solutions that we have, along with others as well, right? So we think about not just sustainable aviation fuel, we think about improved efficiency of aircraft, um, and we talk think about actually some of the regulations going in about you know when you're going to use air travel. Right and alternative forms of travel. So, but you know, there are certain journeys that are still going to be needed to be done by air. There's cargo as well, not just you know personal uh, travel. But you know, I think for short duration flights, you know, there's possibilities at some point for you know alternative propulsion. So, talking electric, hydrogen. You know, we've seen investments being made there as well. But for long haul, when you think about uh, what technology pathway we have today, it's definitely sustainable aviation fuel. And, you know, that's why I think you are seeing the amount of investment happen, as you mentioned. Um, and I think that's also why you're seeing commitments from end users uh, to help catalyze that market as well. Yeah. And so just kind of for the purpose of clarity, like what are we talking about when we're saying sustainable aviation fuel? What is it exactly? Yeah, sure. So, you know, I mean, it's it's. I think it has a, I don't want to call it a broad definition, but it definitely has a definition that has multiple technological pathways, right? So, you know, we today think of four main pathways, but all of them involve using alternative feedstocks to kerosene to produce fuel with lower carbon intensity than traditional jet A. And so, you know, today the, the, there's an established technology called PEFA, uh, which, you know, uses waste products, waste oils, waste food, uh, to convert that through a uh, you know, scientific process uh, to get to sustainable aviation fuel. You know, there's a Fischer-Tropes technology, which is now deployed in a couple of facilities, um, you know, and, and, and Fischer-Tropes has been along for a long time, but you know, to produce sustainable aviation fuel has been now deployed in a couple of facilities. Again, you know, kind of waste 
um, gases and other things being the, the, the main driver of uh, uh, feedstocks. And then you have alcohol to jet, which um, uses ethanol. And there's different, you know, pathways to get to the ethanol, whether it is from what, you know, people are calling 1G ethanol, which is, you know, from corn or sugarcane uh, stock or, you know, more advanced 2G and 3G ethanol, which are from, you know, other waste sources. Um, so you kind of resolve some of the food for fuel concerns. And then finally, you have what um, is you know, called a, a few different names, but power to liquids or e-fuels or e-saf, um, which really is um, the least proven, but maybe the, the highest potential for both uh, decarbonization as well as scale. And that is where you're taking waste CO2 as well as, uh, let's call it low carbon hydrogen, uh, ideally, you know, fully green hydrogen and combining them and coming up with a, uh, end product or NSAF, which is probably, you know, anywhere from 85 to close to 95% lower CI carbon intensity than today's jet fuel. Yeah. So is Bank of America exposed to all of these technologies? Are you invested in like across the board? Yeah. So, I mean, I think we're trying to support where we see um, development happening. And so I think if you take a step back and look at what Bank of America has done specifically in the SAF space, in 2022, we announced um, a pledge around not just the use of SAF, but the financing of SAF and the support of scaling the market. So, you know, that included uh, supporting the production of 1 billion gallons of sustainable aviation fuel by 2030. Um, it included uh, $2 billion in sustainable finance for the production of SAF. And it also included utilizing SAF in 20% of our total corporate and commercial jet fuel usage, um, which equates to about 3 million gallons of SAF per year, which, you know, compared to the 100 billion, billion gallons, you know, used globally isn't a huge amount, but we think, you know, we need to lead by example. And mm -hmm. so, you know, in order to, to meet that goal, we are trying to support all of the technologies um, that, you know, are producing sustainable aviation fuel. That said, we are very aware and mindful of the feedstocks going into uh, the, the fuel pathways. And one of the things that, you know, we want to be uh, ensure is where there are pathways where uh, using what could alternatively be used for food that it is not, you know, replacing food for fuel. And so we are very sensitive there and using waste rather than, you know, kind of primary stocks uh, is yeah. any of the projects that we're looking at supporting. But realistically, how much visibility do you have on where that feedstock is actually coming from and what the sustainability credential of the feedstock actually is? Yeah, it's a good question. And, you know, there's a lot of work being done, you know, kind of across the supply chain today to actually, you know, verify that, right? And so everything from, um, you know, because these questions are being asked, right? And it's not just by you. Um, it is being asked by investors, it's being asked by financiers, uh, and it's being asked by end users. And so, you know, there are systems that are already being put in place to, you know, kind of verify um, where feedstocks are coming from and uh where they are going effectively uh and how they're being used and so you know the most common feedstock today is um 
waste oil and municipal solid waste, right? So two areas where, you know, there's tracking, obviously, um, and where those are being sourced from and um, how, how they're being used by fuel producers or other end users. I think the other thing is, as you see these um, less developed technological pathways like e-fuels develop, you know, there as well, um, you're seeing them being certified using current systems because they qualify under either a regulatory system, like in mm -hmm. the US, California's low carbon fuel standard, in the EU, obviously, there's uh, regulations uh, as well. And so that's, you know, part of the diligence that's being done and the certification that's being done. Yeah, I see. But surely the type of financing that you're able to do in this space will differ based on the, technolo the technology that we're speaking about. So can you kind of run me through the types of financing that you're able to do in sustainable aviation fuel? Yeah, definitely. And, you know, we're definitely still early days. And I think, you know, we are... I would say that a lot of companies are still in, you know, um, well, several projects have been built in the last uh, year or two. We're definitely seeing more in the planning stage, um, as well as still in some proving out their technology and doing pilot facilities. And so we really are taking, again, a, um, a holistic view of how we can support these companies. And so it's everything from, you know, we're involved with, uh, multiple companies who are still raising, you know, capital, private equity or venture capital and helping them, you know, fund the R&D, the pilot yeah. stage, the demonstration plant. Uh, so they're able to prove out their technology. And then we're looking at, you know, those companies that have reached the point that they're commercializing and figuring out if we can do project financing for them. Right. Again, there's probably equity that will be raised at the project level. Uh, which we are assisting with. We're looking at deploying our balance sheet, doing project financing. Um, we have a you know very robust asset finance team, and yeah. you know kind of one of the leading uh, franchises uh, in the renewable space. And we're expanding that across new technologies, um, which is very much what our innovation team is focused on. And finally, we are also looking at helping catalyze demand. And so when you think about um, there's a challenge in a supply constrained uh, system. There's a challenge to getting molecules to the end users that are willing to pay the green premium. And so one of the things that we've committed to as part of our announcement in 2022 was we actually partnered um, with a company, Sky Energy, to do a 10-year offtake of scope three SAF credits, effectively. And so we think that this is a great way that companies, corporates, can support the development of SAF by investing today to commit to pay, you know, uh, for future uh, carbon reduction or carbon emissions reduction when these plants start, you know, producing fuels. And so it makes them financeable, right? So we have the unique perspective that we're on both sides. We know that, you know, these commitments need to be made because when we look to finance these projects, we obviously look to those commitments. And what we're trying to do is develop that market as well. We're also, you know, thinking about um, how do these first of the kind projects get financed, you know, once you have those commitments. And so we're part of Breakthrough Energy Catalyst, where um, the first project that, you know, Breakthrough Energy Catalyst supported was actually a alcohol to jet SAF facility in Georgia uh, that's going to produce uh, 10 million gallons of SAF 
you know, so small, but is going to be the first alcohol to jet facility produced. And, you know, um, this is what I think, you know, needs to happen in the space, which is, you know, a little bit in every bucket, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Right. So, you know, helping, you know, all parts of the value chain of getting SAF production catalyzed. Yeah. But who who's willing to pay and agree to a 10 year offtake agreement on a technology that's not yet proven or to be honest, is not cost competitive? Yeah. And I think it's not for everybody. Right. But I think there are, you know, right. I, I mean, we just have to be honest and say yeah. it's not for everybody to, to make that commitment. But if you think about where aviation emissions fall into uh, the hard to paid emissions for many companies in their supply chains, in like, you know, uh, service companies and financial companies like ourselves, where it's about, you know, employee travel, you know, that's a hard to evade mission. And that's, you know, needing to make commitments outside of what has been the status quo is how you, you know, help scale some of these industries that, you know, are essential to uh, decarbonization and meeting our net zero targets. And so we're finding that there are more and more uh, companies that are willing to, you know, make these sorts of commitments to, um, I wouldn't say unproven technologies, but obviously the first commercialization, right? Now, I think the other thing to, to, to highlight is their offtake agreements are obviously structured in a way that if they don't produce, you're not, you know, kind of uh, out of pocket um, because yeah. they haven't been successful, right? So that that is one aspect that is de-risked. I think, you know, if you're the financiers, if you're the investor investing equity, if you're the financer investing debt, you're doing a lot more diligence and because you have capital at risk. And that's where, you know, the challenge is. And that's why I mentioned, you know, you've got this kind of communal effort and this crowding in of capital uh, and sharing of risk that's happening uh, on that side. And when you say companies that are willing to do this, are we talking about big airlines that have a vested interest? Yeah, yeah, we're seeing airlines, but we're also seeing, you know, uh, our, our CEO is co-chair of the Sustainable Markets Initiative, which is um, was co-founded by um, now King Charles when he was in uh, Prince Charles. And there, you know, I think it's a good example. There's an aviation task force. There's about 200 CEOs of multinational companies that are part of uh, the SMI. And as part of that, and in partnership with Heathrow Airport, has actually called for you know, companies to pledge using 30% SAF by 2030. And so not every company is going to make that pledge, but, you know, you will see a large portion of those companies make pledges. And I'm confident that companies do not make pledges without plans to also figure out how to meet them. And I think the first part of the pledge is making it, but the second part of it is understanding what needs to happen to meet that pledge. And part of that is committing to the offtake, right? Um, we saw that. That's why, you know, we, when we made our pledge, we definitely committed to offtake. And, you know, it's not just the one that I mentioned. We've actually done uh, three others, right, offtake uh, agreements in, in, in the last year. And so that is the type of action I think you'll see, you know, from corporate. I think the challenge for the airlines, frankly, is they're not going to be able to shoulder the full green premium, right? This needs to be a partnership between the airlines and their their customers and the, the end users. And so whether it is uh, civil aviation and, you know, kind of corporates, consumers, whatnot, 
or it is on the transport side, I think you're also seeing on the transport side, it's more obviously around marine fuels and road fuels initially, mm -hmm. but you're also seeing around sustainable aviation fuel companies, logistics companies, companies that you know rely on freight and transport are also realizing that they're going to have to make commitments. And all of this obviously goes to lowering their, you know, either scope one, two, or three, yeah. or one or three emission. And so, you know, it's part of their pathway, you know, to hit their targets as well. And so the, the fact that, you know, the thing that I find encouraging is the fact that there are technologies that are at these different stages and you have people willing to invest at, you know, to support them. I think it's it's an indicator that, you know, when you show somebody a pathway to how they can meet their targets, meet their pledges, they're 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 leaning in and, you know, acting. Because there are still, you know, away from you know, the aviation sector, there's still sectors that we work in where, you know, there's not a solution today, right? Yeah. And there's not a technological pathway that exists. And so I think that's the difference. Now that, you know, in sustainable aviation fuel, people can point to the successes, albeit sometimes small or early. Um, you know, that has shown people that there is a way forward that can, you know, if supply is there, the demand will be there. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a pretty optimistic view to say that the pledges are not without plan. Like, I feel like there's, it's more the opposite opinion that I'm hearing generally, which is that sometimes irrespective of whether it's just about aviation or not, sustainability pledges come before any real action plan is is materializing and i mean even though staff gets a lot of attention for having progressed quite well when it comes to research and development it still only represents what like less than one percent of production of aviation fuel so even bank of america's own pledge that you mentioned at the beginning of this interview it could be seen as quite ambitious in an industry where the supply just isn't there um so i wonder where are you seeing the the bottlenecks in the supply chain is it only on the demand side and with the offtake agreement ele element to it or are there any other structural issues the challenges are on the technology side proving them out proving them at scale you know and proving them at a cost that makes sense right so that yeah. first and foremost is there we've mentioned feedstocks um i think the other one is you know these are large complex projects you know, to build and to operate. And so what you are finding is that, you know, it takes time, right? And you are now starting to see some tailwinds, right? In the US, we have the Inflation Reduction Act, right? It specifically has incentives for renewable fuels, but it has increased incentives specifically around sustainable aviation. So you have the blenders tax credit, and then you'll have the clean fuels production credit. Um, you know, we're seeing those sorts of tailwinds help, you know, overcome the things that you highlighted, which is, you know, how, how do we, you know, go from ambition and aspiration to execution? And so I think those are some of the, the, the ways you're seeing it. You're seeing more airlines realize that they also are going to need to make investments beyond how they have normally operated, right? It's the same thing that we're kind of saying, which is, okay, we wouldn't normally commit to a 10-year commitment. Airlines don't normally commit to 10-year fuel offtakes, but we're seeing them do that now, right? We're seeing them, you know, enter into agreements with some of the fuel producers and say, yeah, we're going to, we're going to, you know, source differently because we understand that it is a scarce commodity effectively. Um, and the supply isn't going to be there. And so, you know, they're also 
making decisions about their supply chains, you know, that are different than how they've normally operated. Yeah. I kind of want to go back on this point around the cost. You know, I saw, I think it was a couple of months ago now that the Boeing CEO had been quoted in the FT saying that climate friendly fuels were never going to reach the competitive cost of traditional kerosene style fuels. Um, and I mean, his point is fair, but generally speaking, it, this applies to most kind of climate friendly technologies that are trying to replace uh, carbon intensive versions. But someone at the end of the day is going to have to bear that cost. So who is that going to be? Is it going to be the end user as in the, the, the consumer itself himself? There is a cost sharing, right? Um, and you, you're seeing that shared between the airlines and the end users. And I, I can't say if it will always be in the ratio it is today or in the at, at the levels there today. But yeah, at, at the end of the day, I do think you know you're going to see the cost borne by uh, the users. Now that being said, um, I don't know. I, I I am confident that the cost to, in ten years will not be the cost that it is today. I can't you know kind of say with any technical expertise that uh, our, the, the Boeing CEO has is that, you know, where it's going to be. But I do think, you know, we're seeing more and more investment. And, and I think the other, the other thing that should be highlighted is it's about bringing down the cost curve, not just in sustainable aviation fuel. Some of these pathways will benefit from other uh, regulations and incentives that are present. Right. So, you know, with hydrogen as a feedstock, right? You know, as for e-fuels, you're going to see, you know, the cost of hydrogen come down over the next decade because, you know, electrolyzer cost production will come down, renewable energy cost continues to come down. And so that being a feedstock into fuels, your e-fuels naturally will lower the cost premium on e-fuels, right? I think yeah. we're seeing companies that have identified today with incentives you know, a, a pathway to cost parity. Now, they have to execute on their plans. And, you know, the question becomes, how quickly can they reach that, that goal? And how quickly can they exceed that goal in order to be able to meet cost targets, even if incentives go away? Right. Yeah, I mean, I also, there is a necessary conversation around the responsibility of the, the end consumer and the user to accept that costs are going to go up when you start associating the cost of carbon, the cost of pollution to your cons consumption, there is going to be an increase in cost. And that is part of the deal. Um, but the, this question on like regulatory incentives, um, it's, it's hard to see anyone, any region competing with the US now that there's the Inflation Reduction Act. Are you seeing any other types of incentives elsewhere that could reach that level? You know, we've, we've, we've obviously seen a lot of debate in Europe um, on how to respond. And, you know, even in North America, we've seen Canada um, come out with certain incentives, not specifically around sustainable aviation fuel, but, you know, um, to, to, to try and compete. Um, I think the one of the things that I look at as sometimes missed in the bemoaning of the U.S. having kind of advanced through incentives is that these incentives will drive down the cost of whatever technology they're supporting. And that yeah. technology will be used globally, right? 
And I actually think that, you know, there's a important aspect of in the developed markets and in the largest economies, you know, having the capital to support the development of technology that will be used in developing countries and smaller economies. Because if you look at the emissions map of, you know, 70% of global emissions are from middle income countries, you know, it, it's not going to be possible for them to either fund the research necessary or fund the green premium at the initial stages. And so, you know, having these incentives, while they are drawing capital to the U.S., they will also, you know, be exporting the technological benefits and gains, sure. you know, to yeah. projects all over the world. Yeah, but it is, I mean, it is still about competition and, you know, who's going to dominate the market and who's going to be producing it and benefiting from having had first mover advantage on these new technologies. And it feels like the U.S. is kind of ahead of it, of the game, at least when it comes to sustainable aviation fuel, because it has regulatory incentives, whereas we might be seeing regulatory hurdles in other regions and other economies. And that's a bit, you know. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I, I think you're pointing out facts, right? Um, meaning that, you know, the we've always said that Europe has been more of a stick and the U.S. has been more of a carrot. Um, and that's kind of continued. Regulation is what's driving the need to, for production of SAF in on the continent. And so I think you're right. We, we definitely have seen capital flow to projects in the US, right? We were talking, you know, um, to lots of developers in Europe and, you know, many of them have said, you know, they're going to um, accelerate projects in the US faster and investment in the US faster than they would in, you know, kind of a European project. I think the one caveat there is at the end of the day, you know, we talked about, you know, the difficulty of getting molecules to the end users. And I think, you know, sustainable aviation fuel, even in the U.S. today, right, it's really only available in a few geographies, right? There are a couple of West yeah. Coast production, and that's kind of predominantly where you can gain access to molecules. I think that's why you will still see investment and projects in Europe, in Asia, because there are there is demand centers there. And so, you know, there, to your point, the cost profile might be different and the premium paid by an end user without subsidies, you know, is going to be higher, but the demand is still there. But I think in, in most instances, you're going to see local production centers develop as well. Yeah, I see. Great. Vilas, thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Um, it was really interesting to hear from you on this topic, and I hope we can uh, be in touch soon for follow-ups. Yeah, thank you, Marion, for having me on. This was a, a, a lot of fun, and uh, it's a topic that uh, I think has lots to be discussed and uh, an interesting future. So uh, excited to contribute uh, our thoughts.